U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy history podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the EXO, Steven. Hey, Steve Arino. Hey there, everyone. Hope you're doing well today. So we are on the Western Theater of Operations in the American Civil War. And we have are in the Vicksburg area of the campaigns. And we're about to start to talk about Steel's Bayou Expedition. So, are you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. Alrighty. So, this expedition was a joint operation. As you know, they typically are. This was with Major General Ulysses S. Grant and his Army of the Tennessee, and Rear Admiral David D. Porter and his Mississippi River Squadron. The goal of this was to move Union forces from the Mississippi River to a point on the Yazoo River upstream of the Confederate forces that were there under Lieutenant General Jan C. Pemberton, you know, and his defenses of Vicksburg. Right, right. They were also trying to avoid the artillery that was placed on the bluff to the east of the city. I mean, you don't want to walk through raining shells? No, we wanted to do that as little as possible, I would think. Okay. I mean, you can give it a go and tell me how you thought of it. You know, I just might. I just might. Okay. I- I'll expect a full report on my desk by 0800. Yeah, and you can expect it. <laughs> so the expedition was supposed to leave the Yazoo River and proceed not directly, but more of an indirect route through a series of waterways in the floodplain east of the Mississippi. And if you like... I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier. I can send you a map. I do like maps. I know you do. That's why I'm sending it to you. There we go. We'll see if your eyeballs work with that one. So both the Army and the Navy did move separately, but they moved in a coordinated fashion. The Naval Flotilla, they moved into Steele's Bayou on March 14th, 1863, and two army transports followed them on their opening leg. A number of others were to come later if, you know, the first set of guys didn't get blown up on the way in. Now, getting through Steele's Bayou was not really that difficult, but the second leg, which was Deer Creek, this proved pretty much impossible. It was narrow and it had a lot of turns. And this made the boats move at a pretty much a snail's pace. So you don't got quick movement, you're a sitting target. And, you know, also what the the Confederacy did was that they put trees across the stream. Oh, that's credit where it's due. Pretty brilliant. Yeah. Now, the boats would have retreated, but the Confederate troops got behind them and fell trees on the other side of them. 
trapping them between the uh, about one and a half miles from Rolling Fork and Deer Creek. So now that the boats are trapped, Porter, he, he yells for help to the army. And then he issues orders to his captains to prepare to scuttle their boats rather than, you know, letting them fall into enemy hands. Yeah. So General T. Sherman forced marched his men to get to the flotilla by March 22nd and drove off the Confederate patrols. And then the vessels were able to clear the trees and move back into Steele's Bayou. And then on March 27th, the entire expedition went back to the Mississippi, having, you know, accomplished not a thing, <laughs> nothing, nada. They gave it the old college try. Yeah, this was Grant's last attempt to attack Pemberton's right flank. So since he can't get at the right flank, he's like, I'm going to the left flank. So that's pretty much it for Steele's Bayou Expedition. They came, they saw, they did not conquer. No. So from there, we're going to move on to the Battle of Grand Gulf. So this was fought on April 29th of 1863. The U.S. had seven ironclad warships and seven companies of men. We are not too sure what the Confederacy had in numbers. We know Bowen's division was there, but that's about all we knew. So Admiral Porter leads his seven ironclads in a attack on the fortification and batteries at the Granite Gulf in on the Mississippi with the intention of just killing, well, destroying all of the, the guns there and taking the area. Mm-hmm. The attack by the ironclads began at 0800 and they kept going until about 1330. So during this battle, the ironclads moved to within 100 yards of the Confederate guns, and they pretty much instantly silenced the lower batteries of Fort Wade. Now, the upper batteries at Fort Coburn remained out of reach and continued to fire on them. So the Union ironclads and the transports, they draw off. And after, you know, the sun goes down, it gets dark, the ironclads again engage the Confederate guns. And, you know, the steamboats be with the barges begin running the gauntlet to, uh, to get through there. Grant marches his men overland across Coffee Point to below the Gulf. And after the transports had gotten through, they brought on the troops at Disharoon's plantation and took them to the Mississippi shore at Bruinsburg below the Grand Gulf and let them go. The men immediately just start marching to Port Gibson in Mississippi. Now, even though this was a victory for the Confederacy, it did not do much because Grant was like, Okay, we're just going to make a slight change then and just, you know, five degrees this way and we're good to go. I'm noticing that seems to be a pattern with Confederate victory. Mm -hmm. When they do win, it's, yeah, 
it, it it's not much of an overall tactical victory, just a victory on that particular field. Well, it, it's not just that, but it's a lot with Grant, too, because of how good of a commander he is. Always adapting? Oh, yeah. All good generals do. But all good generals are also complete and total donkey holes. <laughs> but anyway, that's the Battle of Grand Gulf. How you feeling about that one? Uh, another short, sweet, and to the point one. Well, you want a third one? I got a third one for you. Short, sweet, and to Let's the point. It. Battle of Snyder's Bluff. So this was fought from April 29th to May 1st, 1863. This was when the Union forces under Major General William T. Sherman made a feint against the Confederate units holding the bluff. So, to try and make sure that the troops were not taken to Grand Bluff against the Confederates there, a combined Union Army-Navy force made a fake attack on Snyder's Bluff, which is in Mississippi. This was after 1200 on April 29th. Lieutenant Commander K. Rudolph Bressy with eight gunboats and ten transports carrying Major General Francis Blair's division, they started going up the Yazoo River, going towards the mouth of the Chickasaw Bayou. And they decided, you know what, guys? That was a lot of rowing. Let's go to bed. Very exhausting work. Yeah. So they spend the night there. They get up around 0900, and they continue up river except for one gunboat. They go up river to Drumgold's Bluff and start engaging the enemy batteries there. During this fight, the USS Choctaw, they get hit over 50 times, but they don't suffer any casualties. That's amazing. Very. So around 1800, the troops on the troop transports, they go ashore and march along Blake's Levee towards the guns. And as they get near Drumgould's Bluff, they get to meet a battery head-on. This causes a lot of casualties and confusion. Of course, this halts the Union advance, and after Darkness Falls... The men turn around, get back on their transports, and push away from the shore. So the next morning, the men that stayed behind the day before, they come ashore. And they try the exact same thing. And they are also stopped by heavy artillery fire. And they encounter a lot of swampy terrain. So they, once again, turn around, go back to the transports, and shove off. This is when the gunboats open fire again. Uh, around 1500, on May 1st, they start doing a bit of damage. And then, you know, darkness falls and they stop shooting. Sherman then receives orders to take his troops to Milken's Bend. And so they all just retreat down back to the mouth of the Yazoo and anchor there and start doing their job down there. So that's the Battle of Snyder's Bluff. 
I'm noticing a bit of a pattern here. Enlighten us. Short, sweet, and to the point. That was short, sweet, and to the yeah, point. Yeah, we're three for three. The, the last few episodes have been grand sweeping epics a lot of the time. Well, I mean, this is river warfare. There's not really much you can do. I, this is, okay, let me rephrase that. This is small river warfare. They're taking advantage of the the flooded springs and creeks instead of, you know, the main river of Mississippi. Right. So, not much you could do there. But they're trying. And we can't fault them for trying. All right, so that's... No, you cannot. So that's Vicksburg. So now we're going to move on to Tuluahoma, Chickamauga, and the Chattanooga campaign. This is between June and December of 1863. So... After Rosencrantz's victory at Stones River, he occupies the Murfreesboro for around six months while Bragg, you know, takes a break in Tullahoma. And they establish a defensive line intending to block the Union advances against the city of Chattanooga, which is on his rear. In April, the Union Cavalry, under Colonel Abel Strait, moves against the railroad that supplies Bragg's army in Middle Tennessee. He was hoping that it would make him withdraw to Georgia. So Strait's brigade raided Mississippi, Alabama, fighting against Nathan Bedford Forrest and his men. Straight ended his raid when he looked around and saw how exhausted his men were and that each one of them had a white flag and were surrendering near Rome, Georgia. So he was like, well, I guess we're done. Yeah, yeah, if the men are fixing white flags, it might be time to throw in the towel. (laughs) So in June, Rosencrantz advances against Bragg. And this turned out to be a pretty brilliant and almost bloodless campaign, which was the Tuluahoma campaign. And this drove Bragg out of Middle Tennessee. During this time, Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan and his men, which were cavalry, They rode west from Sparta in Middle Tennessee on June 11th. Him and his 2,460 men wanted to divert the attention of the Army of Ohio because they were moving towards Knoxville. So at the start of the Tullahoma campaign, Morgan moves north. And for 46 days, they ride over 1,000 miles. Okay, let me run that math in my head, because that, that is a very long distance very quickly back then. That's staggering. You know what? Let's, let's not do mental math. You know that's not my strength, Captain. You have technology right in front of you. Yes, use your calculator. It's fine. I'm not going to judge you. So on average, they're moving 21.74 miles a day. Yes. That's them, their supplies, their beasts of burden. Beasts of burden. That's a lot to move, 21 miles a day. 
So Morgan's men terrorized the region from Tennessee to northern Ohio, destroying bridges, railroads, government stores, before finally being captured in November. And then, no, they, before finally being captured. And then in November, they escaped the penitentiary they were being held at in Ohio and went home to the south. These these are some men. You cannot stop them, apparently. Well, they stopped them for a very short amount of time <laughs> before they left again. I wonder how fast their march home was. I think it was uh, 21 miles a day. Well, I mean, if they found horses, probably just as fast, if not a little faster. Yeah, they were minus the equipment, but they were also minus the supplies they needed for themselves and their horses. I don't know. We're getting into semantics now. <laughs> well, if we can uh, get the U.S. Cavalry podcast in on this or something. I'll let you uh, hook up with them. I I've been doing all the work for the other ones. So, at this time, Rosencrantz, he started delaying for a few weeks in Tullahoma. But he was making a plan to flush Bragg out of Chattanooga by crossing the Tennessee River and heading south and cutting his supply line from Georgia. So he begins his campaign on August 18th and uses two weeks of bombardment of Chattanooga as a diversion. He's shelling Chattanooga as a diversion. As you do. The Confederate High Command reinforces Bragg with a division from Mississippi and Virginia. And Rosencrantz then pursues Bragg into the mountains of the northwestern part of Georgia and find out that that's exactly what Bragg's wanted to do. He had laid a trap. This is the Battle of Chickamauga. This was September 19th through 20th of 1863, and he launched a three-division assault against the core of George H. Thomas. There was a communications error, and this allowed a huge gap in the Union line as the reinforcements started arriving. So Longstreet is able to take his men and shove them right through that hole. And this sends the Union army into retreat. They were like, they're filling our holes. Retreat. <laughs> Phrasing. Phrasing. <laughs> so there was a defensive stand by a guy named Thomas. Had he saved the entire Union army from being completely routed because of it, what he did. And Rosencrantz... He he's like, okay, guys, I think we're done here. Let's go back to Chattanooga. And Bragg sieges it. He occupies the high ground around the city and was just looking at them menacingly. Grrr. Yeah. So back in Vicksburg, Grant's just sitting there. He's like, guys, you've had a very long march. Rest. You need it. You're looking peckish. And he starts planning for a campaign to capture Mobile and then start pushing east. 
that's when Washington receives news of what happened to Rosencrantz. And Lincoln was like, oh, no, this ain't going to work. Grant, go get him. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> More Confederates to beat up. He's so excited. Yeah. yeah. But now he doesn't get to go to Mobile. <laughs> but so on October 17th, he was given command of the military division of the Mississippi, which means that he controlled all the armies in the Western theater now. He looked at Rosencrantz said, look what you did. Look what you got yourself into. You're fired. Uh, hey, Thomas, I saw what you did up there. I like you. You're hired. And he went to Chattanooga. And he approved a plan to open a new supply line called, quote, unquote, the Cracker Line. This allowed supplies and reinforcements into the city. Soon, the men there were joined by 40,000 from the Army of the Tennessee under Sherman and the Army of the Potomac under Joseph Hooker. And so while the Union Army is steadily getting bigger and bigger, the Confederate Army is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, they only have so many because, folks. Because, well, Bragg also had to send men off to hold off an advance by Burnside. So, the battle for Chattanooga begins on November 24th, 1863. While Hooker takes Lookout Mountain, which, you know, is one of two of the prominent peaks on the city. Yeah. Then the next day, Grant plans a double envelopment of where Bragg is at this point in time on the you know the other mountain mm -hmm. of the you know the other peak, yeah. which was called Missionary Ridge. Sherman was to get him from the north, and Hooker was to come up from the south, and Thomas was to stay right there in the middle. But Sherman he got bogged down because he got confused. And so Grant orders Thomas to launch a small attack as a diversion to try to get the pressure off of Sherman. And Thomas's troops, they got very, very excited and eager to redeem themselves, you know, after their humiliation because of, of uh, Rosencrantz. Yeah. So they just attacked and started charging up the the ridge and this broke the confederate line making them retreat so chattanooga is saved yay and yeah and because burnside also fails this means that the eastern tennessee is now free of confederate control this also opened a corridor directly to Atlanta, which is, do you know? Sherman's March? The heart of the Confederacy. Oh. Okay, I thought we were going to that. Well, no, that's Army. So. Oh, fair enough. No. I mean, we will probably touch on it quickly when we go through the Atlanta campaign here soon. But yeah, we're not going to get deep into it. Uh, so... Bragg, his job was only saved because he was close and personal friends of Jefferson Davis, you know, until he fails a couple more times. And then he's replaced by General Joseph E. John. 
your friendship with the president only lasts so long. If you uh, don't succeed. If you keep losing territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you keep losing territory, you're going to be out eventually. <laughs> so we're going to move on to the Atlanta campaign. This is between May and September of 1864. And here, I, I know you love maps. So here you go. Here's another one. I, Just I am for you. fond of a good map. I know you do. You can follow along easier. Mm -hmm. Gives me something to work off of. Okay, see, this one, this one's good. <laughs> it isn't all pixelated. You like that one? Yes. Okay, well, your internet burped out a good map this time. No, no, no. You can't, you can't blame my connection on the low resolution. Oh, I could blame it on anything I want. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I'll put it to you this way. Copying and pasting it into paint, it went down to a third of the size. Magically, blowing up the image doesn't magically keep resolution despite what uh crime shows suggest why are you putting it into a paint just open it as is yeah i did and it was poor resolution so i thought hey maybe if i open it in paint that'll, that'll okay. tell me what the resolution's supposed to be i don't know anyway uh atlanta atlanta okay march 1864 grant is promoted to lieutenant general and he goes west to take command of all of the Union armies. Sherman takes over Grant's old position as the commander of the military division of the Mississippi. So Grant sits back and he thinks about how he's going to go about this. And he's like, we need to make a simultaneous advance across the Confederacy. This was to destroy Robert E. Lee's army in Virginia with three major thrusts launched in Richmond in the Shenandoah Valley, capturing Mobile, and destroying Johnston's army going towards Atlanta. Now, you know, plans... They never really go as planned. So most of the initiatives fail. Butler becomes bogged down in the Bermuda 100 campaign. Siegel is quickly defeated in the valley. Banks gets occupied in the ill-fated Red River campaign. So Meade and Grant they experienced a lot of setback and a lot of bloodshed in this campaign. Then they get down to the siege of Pittsburgh. Now Sherman, on the other hand, he was much more successful going after Atlanta. So at the beginning of this, his military division of the Mississippi consisted of three armies. This was the Army of the Tennessee, the Army of the Ohio, and the Army of the Cumberland, being headed by James P. McPherson, John M. Schofield, and George H. Thomas. Now, on the opposite side of Sherman was the Confederate Army of Tennessee, commanded by Joseph E. Johnston. Now, Sherman actually did outnumber Johnston. Sherman had 98,000 men to Johnston's 50,000. But, unfortunately, his ranks started getting depleted because soldiers 
started, you know, going on vacation. Jerks. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you got you to gotta get your furlough. If you don't get your furlough, you don't become combat effective anymore. Uh. We learned that the hard way. You got to give men breaks. <laughs> and, you know, Johnson also, while all the furloughs are going on on the Sherman side, Johnson gets about 15,000 reinforcements from Alabama. So... So the campaign starts with a number of battles in May and June because Sherman starts pressing Johnston southeast through the mountains. Sherman does avoid frontal assaults against most of Johnston's positions and maneuvers on flanking marches around the Confederate defenses. Now, Sherman, for some reason, liked the left, so he always went left. So... Pretty much, Johnson's just started getting funneled in one direction. And he would have to retreat to, you know, one prepared position to another prepared position. Now, that changed during the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. He decided he was going to surprise Johnston with a frontal assault. Even though all of his advisors were saying, No, dude, what we've been doing is working. This is just stupid. Or brilliance. Yeah. He suffers 7,000 casualties because of this. Johnston, 700. Uh, Both supply lines were on the railroad. And, of course, Johnston's started getting shorter and shorter as he was pushed back. So his supplies were getting there sooner. Now, Davis is starting to get frustrated with Johnston because he was looking around and saying... Why do you keep losing territory? You're not even counterattacking. You're not even coming to talk to me so we can get a plan of action go. So just before the Battle of Peachtree Creek, just outside of Atlanta, Jefferson Davis replaces Johnston with Lieutenant General John Bell Hood, who he felt was more aggressive. And he was, because over the next six weeks, Hood would repeatedly attack portions of Sherman's forces that he thought were weak, and each attack failed, often with heavy casualties. Eventually, Sherman would cut Hood's supply line from the south, and knowing that he was trapped, Hood evacuated Atlanta during the middle of the night on September 1st burning, you know, military supplies and installations. Hey, that was fire. Drink. We didn't start the fire. Actually, we kind of did. Yeah. So, at the same time that Sherman won in Atlanta, Admiral David Farragut wins at the Battle of Mobile Bay. He went streaming past the forts guarding the mouth of the bay and engaged the force engaged in forced the surrender of the Confederate fleet that was defending the city, capturing their admiral, Franklin Buchanan. Now, the city itself would remain in Confederate hands, but the seaport was closed, which, you know, tightened the noose around the blockade. That it would do. Now, the capture of Atlanta and Mobile Bay would boost northern morale, and made enormous contributions in 1864. That's how Atlanta happened. 
All right. We're going to hit the Battle of Paducah real quick. And then next week, we will get into the Battle of Mobile Bay. Battle of Mobile Bay, that's going to be a big one. That I was going to say, that that is the big one that really uh, closes out off the Gulf Coast stuff, isn't it? Uh the Atlanta stuff. Mm. So the Battle of Pudak was fought on March 25th, 1864. Forrest goes out from Columbus, Mississippi into Western Tennessee and Kentucky with a force of around 3000 men. Their objective was to recruit soldiers, refit their force with supplies and to mess with the Union. They got to Paducah, Kentucky on March 25th and occupies the town. There was a Union garrison there of 650 men. They look at 3,000 men and say, you know what? Let's all just go to the fort. We can be safer there. So that's what they do. They go to Fort Anderson on the west end of town. So Hicks is the colonel in command of the Union forces, and he has two gunboats on the Ohio River. So he's like, no, the Navy's got my back. I'm not surrendering. Make me. <laughs> you and what army? When they say that, that's when the Navy starts shelling them. That Navy. <laughs> I don't need an army. I got the Navy. No, no, I asked for an army. You're supposed to play by the rules. <laughs> so, yeah. Forrest receives Hicks' answer, quote, If I have to storm your works, you may expect no quarter. And Hicks was like, fire, fire. I politely decline. And that's when shells start hitting. <laughs> he timed it perfectly. It's very theatrical. So Forrest was like, you know what? Let's just grab everything we can in town, destroy what we don't want, grab all the horses and mules because we just sent a small force to do what I threatened and they got repulsed really violently. Lots of casualties. So let's just grab this stuff and go. The newspapers in town said that Forrest had run off so quickly with his tail between his legs that he left more than a hundred horses behind oh. that he, he didn't find. Yeah, so one of Forrest's uh, officers, a guy named Abraham Buford, was like, oh, we cannot allow this. And he takes men, rides back into town, and takes all the horses. So at the end of all this, casualties on the Union side, 90. On the Confederate side, 50. And this is technically a Confederate victory. Because of the destruction of supplies and the stealing of animals. There really wasn't much that, you know, it really did much. It really didn't do much at An all. Another one of those, yes, technically Confederate victories. What did it really accomplish? The only thing, it, it did accomplish one thing. It warned the Union that... Forrest or someone like him could strike anywhere at any time. So they got to be on their guard. Oh, I thought you were going to say, you know, Forrest's men were able to enjoy some, you know, burgers or something. They might have. 
They had an abundance of horse meat yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. All right, so that is where we're going to leave it today. So we have teamed up with HeroCars.us, and together we honor one of our fallen angels. So today we are going to honor Ensign Dwight C. Angel. His hometown was Lamar, Colorado. He, his unit was Patrol Squadron VP-22. He received the Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was January 18, 1953. Killed in action in the Formosa Strait off Swaptau, China. He was 24 years old and he served in the Korean War. So Dwight Clark Angel was born on August 17th. 1928 and grew up in central Colorado along with his twin brother Otis Jr. and his sister Barbara Ann. He graduated from South Denver High School and studied civil engineering at Colorado A&M College which is going to be later the Colorado State University. He was a member of the A&M Athletic Club and joined the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity before graduating in 1950. In August of 1950, he enlisted in the United States Navy and went through air cadet training, earning his wings and his commission at Pensacola Naval Air Station on Florida's Gulf Coast in April 1952. A month later, Angle eloped with Miss Gary Britton, whom he met at Colorado A&M, and they both moved to Hawaii, where Dwight was assigned. His next assignment was in Japan. Jerry was diagnosed with polio and returned to stay with her family in Denver. On January 20th, 1953, Jerry received a telegram from the U.S. Navy, one that all military families... Her husband had been missing for two days. Ensign Engel was with Patrol Squadron 22 and was one of 13 crew members aboard a P-2V Neptune patrol bomber based in Okinawa, Japan. The plane took off from Naval Air Facility Atsugi, Japan, on a shipping surveillance mission in the China Sea. Flying near the China coast in the Formosa Straits, their P-2V was hit by enemy anti-aircraft fire. The plane was struck by the cockpit on the port beam. Its port engine and wing were on fire, forcing an emergency water landing. The aircraft slammed into the sea 15 minutes after being hit, and despite 15-foot swells and 30-knot winds, all 13 crew members managed to escape the sinking plane, and an SOS was sent. They had one burned and partially inflatable life raft. They all crung to the side in the frigid waters, hoping their SOS had been received. Five hours later, help arrived in the form of Lieutenant John Volk, flying a U.S. Coast Guard PBM-5G Mariner. The Coast Guard Air Detachment of U.S. Naval Station Sangley Point in the Philippines received word that a Navy aircraft had gone down and scrambled for a rescue mission. With night falling and sea squalls increasing, officials at Sangley Point left the go-no-go decision to Lieutenant Volk. Putting himself and his crew at enormous risk, Volk chose to land the plane. 
Skillfully setting the aircraft down on rough seas, Lieutenant Volk maneuvered close enough to pick up the Neptune survivors. With conditions worsening, the rescue plane attempted to take off when the starboard engine suddenly quit. Its right wing was caught by an ocean swell, and this flooded into the aircraft, which turned the plane vertically and causing it to cartwheel. Five of the Coast Guard rescuers and four of the rescued sailors died in this crash. Survivors huddled in two life rafts and rescue ships, which included the destroyer USS Halsley Powell DD-686, were dispatched. After a long ordeal in enemy waters, 10 survivors were pulled safely aboard the Halsley Powell. Seven of them had survived two plane crashes on the same day. Edson Dwight C. Engel was not among the survivors and was declared missing in action, lost at sea on January 18, 1953. He was listed as presumed dead a year later on January 19, 1954. Some newspaper accounts in 1955, including the Asheville Citizen Times, insist that Ensign Engel survived the crash and was taken prisoner in China. According to the State Department's report to Republican McCormick, the Americans definitely known to be in the communist hands included the following. Navy, Ensign Dwight C. Engel. Whether Lieutenant Engel survived the second plane crash off the coast of China may never be known. After being declared presumed dead, Lieutenant Engel had been added to the list of heroes lost in what is often referred to as the Forgotten War. Jerry Engel eventually remarried and had two. So, Dwight C. Engel, thank you. All right, XO, would you like to take us out? We hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If so please feel free to uh, leave a comment to whatever podcasting app you choose to listen to us on. And we're now on YouTube, so if you're listening there, we'd love to hear your uh, comments and critiques as well. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe, by the way. I think I'm contractually obligated to do that if we're on YouTube. <laughs> if you want to reach out to us, our email is usnavy... No. <laughs> US. <laughs> Dang that. YouTube I, messed, I messed you myself up. I messed myself up because <laughs> I had to go and do the YouTube plug. If you want to reach out to us via Twitter, you can reach us at USN History Pod. Our email is US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord now, and you can find the links to that in the show notes. I think that's it. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, we wish you fair winds and following seas. Goodbye, guys. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>